Hello, listeners, and welcome to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. As usual, today's episode is in two parts. In part one, we're speaking with Maria Karaskijo about her experiences with uncertainty as a member of the legal department for a medical device manufacturer during a global pandemic. No small feat. Then in part two, musician, composer, and educator Johnny Pfeiffer uses our interview with Maria as inspiration for an original musical composition. You'll get to hear the piece, the story of its creation, and more coming up. I'm your host, Robin Fowler. You're listening to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. What is We Don't Know What This Is Yet? (laughs) Other than the simple answer of We Don't Know, here's what you'll be hearing today. Each episode revolves around a simple theme, uncertainty. We're speaking with our guests about what uncertainty has meant to them during the past year, and I think we can all agree the last year has brought us all plenty of uncertainty. We'll then hand these interviews over to artists and ask them to listen, reflect, and creatively respond to our guest experiences in whatever way or medium they choose. Today, you'll be hearing a song. Once that's done, we'll talk with the creators about their experiences making this work, their inspirations, their process, and their uncertainties throughout. Our first guest today is Maria Karaskijo. Maria serves as a senior compliance specialist at a growing local medical device manufacturer. More on that soon. Before she started working in that field, Maria worked as a researcher in Washington, D.C., and as a finance staffer and organizer in New Hampshire politics. She's also a competitive gymnastics coach and a lifelong classical ballet dancer and theater lover. And full disclosure, Maria is also New Hampshire Theater Project's new board president. Welcome, Maria, to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. How are you today? I'm good. I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. Uh, so um, let's dive right into it because a lot of people might have some questions about this right off the bat. So uh, why don't you tell us a bit about the work that you do and what kind of work that you do? Sure. So I work in the legal department of a medical device manufacturer, and I think a lot of people may be surprised that there is a medical device manufacturer here in New Hampshire, um, a pretty big one. Uh, So I obviously I work in there. I work in the legal department. A lot of my work has to do with um, ethics and compliance with regulations. Um, it's actually very interesting work. I might be very nerdy and think that it's the coolest thing ever, but, but I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, the primary purpose of my role is to make sure that we're behaving in a moral and ethical fashion in what we do. So it's, I think it's pretty interesting. Yes. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and what is your connection to New Hampshire? Yeah, I grew up here. Um, I was, I was born in Puerto Rico. I moved to New Hampshire when I was five years old. Um, my parents, were looking for new jobs and they had visited Cape Cod on vacation before they had children. And uh, when it was time to pick a new place to live, they kind of went, uh, New Hampshire. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how we landed here. So I've been here ever since. Um, I grew up here. I went to University of New Hampshire. So I'm a local. So for your industry, for your line of work, um, What are some ways that it's been affected by the social, political, uh, health, public health climate of the past year? So uh, the type of medical device that we manufacture is a respiratory device. Um, So given that this 
pandemic is a respiratory pandemic. Um, it definitely brought a lot of changes to our company and to the industry in general. But we became a widely known therapeutic uh, when COVID hit, and we went from you know a, a pretty small, growing organization to now something that needed to be able to replicate itself around the entire country and around the world. And so we had to figure out how do you do that in like a matter of days. And you do that in the context of not knowing exactly what you're dealing with. So from a health perspective, we needed to get our products to the people who truly needed them, um, to hospitals and to their patients. Uh, But we also had to navigate from a social perspective and, and a little bit of a political perspective, how do we do that in the context of a pandemic? How do we protect our employees? We're asking them to come in every day in person in the middle of a pandemic. How do we make sure that we're doing the right thing when we don't even know what we're dealing with? In that, did you see a lot of uh, having to kind of set up these branching paths of choices? Like, okay, that's going to get blocked off. Let's go this way. Or did you kind of see people doubling down on one thing and saying, hey, we're going to make it happen this way or it's not going to happen? What what were the different strategies that you saw and maybe what worked and what didn't? I think for us, it was definitely um, teaming up and then branching out to just go in every possible direction until we hit a dead end. Um, I know in my type of in my line of work in the legal department, that's exactly how we were approaching the subject. Um, we would get, uh, you know, for example, the way in which our country decided to handle this pandemic um, was to really allow the state to drive um, how they were going to acquire medical devices, how they were going to distribute them. Um, so it was a very decentralized approach, which now meant that we needed to navigate 50 different uh, procurement um, agent, agencies and paths. What was the kind of feeling amongst you and your colleagues on on the ground at the time? Was it people were like, "All right, we we are ready, we are battle hardened, let's do this," or was it like, "Oh, okay, I don't know about this," or somewhere in between? It was, I think, both. One of the things I love about working in the medical device industry is that you have that tie to the work that you do is always helping somebody's family member, someone's aunt, someone's grandmother. So that was really helpful and that we could unify behind that common mission, that common goal, and that we were able to do something that was making the situation better um, in some way, shape, or form. However, we're all human beings. And and this is speaking from my personal experience. I, I wanted to do anything I could do to help the pandemic end, to make things better, to stop from people from dying. But at the same time, I was being told that in the middle of a pandemic, and this is like March or April, we don't know, you know, if we can cure it, if it's like, we don't know anything about this. We just know like it's a respiratory disease. Um, We were being asked to go into an office and to be around other people. And I remember when I got, I was working from home the first week and a half. And then I got a call saying, we need you to come in in person starting on Monday. And I sat on my couch and I was like bawling and like the most anxiety inducing moment because you're being told to do something so contradictory. Like put your life at the time we thought, you know, if you went outside, you're going to die. Put your (laughs) life on the line and come into work so that we can help people who are in the hospital and 
I'm sitting here thinking, if I go into work, I'm going to be in the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was a really, really stressful um, stretch March and April because, you know, we were going in and putting ourselves at risk to help patients, which I want to do, but I was petrified that I was going to be the next patient. (laughs) In what ways was, do you think that your industry was prepared for uh, this kind of uncertainty? And in what ways did you have to quickly adapt? (laughs) That's a tough question. So, so I think that we were prepared. I think that there were some things that you wouldn't have planned on in the, obviously in a situation like this, um, we needed to make sure that we would be able to get enough of the parts to put our products together. Um, we needed to make sure that we had a, access to hospitals, which like, we didn't at, in the March-April point. You, so how do you try to show a doctor that you have a product that can help them if you can't actually access the doctor, right? And so those are things that you would have never in a million years planned for. I don't think any medical device company would have thought, oh, let's let's put a strategic plan in our back pocket for how to sell devices or sell pharmaceuticals completely remotely with no access to hospitals and no access to doctors. And on top of that, the doctors that we would have spoken to about our technology were the ones who were curing people in the EAD and in the ICU. They're a little busy. Yeah. yeah so, so they're not going to pick up a call like, hey, I'm your local sales rep and I want to talk to you about our product. They'd be like, literally go away and never come Quick. back. <laughs> so so oh, I think wow. from like a, from a, in terms of like the big picture for, for the industry, I think the industry was prepared from a product perspective. I don't think the industry, I think the industry really had to strategize of how do we help people when we can't access them. Do you see the remote, the virtual aspect of meetings and conversations continuing uh, past the pandemic? Definitely. And I don't just say that because I love working from home. You know, our the leadership in our company said, uh, once we made that switch to remote work, we we had the same productivity, if not more. So it was it was great. People were able to get work done efficiently. And I know from a personal perspective, I was able to get all of my work done and more and still have a life. Um, I picked up working out, which is crazy. I never thought I would be able to work out on the same day that I go to work, um, but I could. Uh, So, you know, I think it's, I think it's here to stay. I think for my organization, it's here to stay. And I think for this country and around the world, remote work is here to stay. Um, what feels uncertain to you right now, personally or professionally? It's <laughs> a big question, I know. <laughs> what feels uncertain? Uh, uh, <laughs> everything. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, um, my husband and I, you know, we take, we've been taking this pandemic really seriously. And I think that has a lot to do with the alignment of work that I'm in. So mm. we, one of the things that my company does is that we share patient stories. Um, so we get to hear sometimes, you know, from our team members who heard it from a clinician, um, but sometimes from the patients themselves, um, how bad, you know, this COVID virus really is. And, and, you know, I lost my grandmother to COVID in November and I lost, uh, <laughs> oh, <I'm> sorry. sorry. <laughs> 
um, my best friend lost her dad to COVID um, on Christmas Eve. So. Sorry. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been, um, you know, locked down. We, my, my only human interaction is when I go into the office, um, which I usually lock myself in a conference room all day. So I don't get any human interaction. Um, so everything feels uncertain, right? It's, it's the same question that I think everyone has. When is this going to be over? What's going to happen next? Because everyone keeps telling us, um, when this is, over it's a new normal yeah. it's not your regular normal and so we're like gosh when the new norm what's going to be the new normal yeah. and how are we going to operate within the new normal <sighs> yeah that's the sad part that's the personal part mm. this is this is the another personal question tell us everything that you did yesterday in as much or as little detail as you want to go into okay um let's see i woke up uh at 7.55. Please note that I start working at 8. But when your office is the next room over, you can wake up at 7.55. I sat down in this wonderful uh, 10 um, by 8 room. Answered a lot of emails that came in overnight. The work that I do is with our international folks. So I usually have a full inbox by 8 a.m. And then I get another full inbox by noon from everybody who started working in the U.S. I ticked away at my email. I did do a reporting project yesterday. So that was exciting. This is just so boring. I'm so sorry. Ate some lunch. I came back to ticking away at my computer for another few hours. Around 3 o'clock, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so I sat on my couch at 3 o'clock. I had a snack. I spent far too much time on TikTok. Pretty much the only thing getting me through the pandemic. And then my day gets exciting. And at 4.30, I changed into some workout clothes. Went ahead and I answered like four more emails in my workout outfit. Um, and then I did my workout. And then... What did I do after my workout? I sat on my couch on TikTok for probably another hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> and then I made dinner. I ate said dinner. I called. Who did I? I FaceTimed two people yesterday. Oh, I FaceTimed my mother-in-law because she wanted to see my dog. I FaceTimed my mom because as I was showering, it occurred to me that my parents brought me to the U.S. when I was They five. continued to speak to me in Spanish, but they never taught me how to read or write. And then when I got into high school, and I went immediately into like honors, higher level standards. But I didn't know how to read or write. And I actually, I failed out. I flunked out of high school Spanish. It had an F and I had to drop the class. I'm a native fluent Spanish speaker and I flunked out of Spanish. So I had to call my mom last night. I yelled at her. It was like nine o'clock and she was half asleep. So here I am just like going to town on her. And I'm like, I can't believe you never taught me how to read or write. And then you expected me to pass high school Spanish. All she said, because she was like literally sleeping was, okay. I, I don't know why that occurred to me last this night. This is where my head's at when you literally have been sitting at home for 11 months. So then after I did that, I was like, was all agitated. Um, so then I watched three episodes of this awesome show called Search Party on HBO. Now. 
Johnny Pfeiffer is a composer, drummer, pianist, and band leader of the award-winning band Sojoy, with which he has recorded several albums. He is the founder and creator of the 20-piece Fela Kuti tribute ensemble Shango Afrobeat Orchestra and Desert Island Live, which performs full-length albums from artists like Tom Waits and Joni Mitchell. Johnny is also one of the co-creators of The Adventures of Oliver Z. Wanderkook, a live performance piece combining music, dance, spoken word, and animation. Johnny responded to Maria's interview with a song, a quiet, nostalgic tune that builds into sweeping joy and... You know what? Let's just play it for you now. This is Johnny Pfeiffer's Maestra Amalia. That again was Maestra Amalia, inspired by our conversation with Maria Karaskicho. And now, here's Johnny Pfeiffer. Well, welcome, Johnny Pfeiffer, to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. Thanks, Robin. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, thank you. And we just heard Maestra Amalia, that's what you're calling it? That's right. Um, a, a beautiful piece that you created in response to our, uh, our discussion, our interview with Maria Karaskijo. Um, what, uh, what were some of the aspects of that interview that were interesting to you and what did you latch onto in the creation of this piece? Yeah. So she mentioned early on and then again, a little bit later, uh, she was from Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, and she was born there and moved moved to this area, which was young. But so that was 
the kind of the first thing that my my ears perked up. I was like, yes, <laughs> uh, I have I have an in <laughs> something cultural um, to latch on to. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, um, some artists that um, have been a huge influence on me, like um, Eddie Palmieri and Tita Puente, who their music came to mind, especially. So yeah, the Port- Puerto Ricans have a huge amount of pride for for their music and and mm. that art form. So um, yeah, I wanted to celebrate that for sure. It was you know it was a minor part I think of her interview, but the other thing that I latched onto was the fact that her her grandmother just passed uh, in November, and you can hear in her voice when she it sounded like she wasn't maybe planning on mentioning it, but you know, you could hear that the emotion is, is still, you know, it's really fresh. Um, and I was really, yeah, just touched, touched by that. And, you know, I talked to her a little bit after, after listening to the, the interview, she sort of reinforced my, my thinking on this. It's like, what a weird time to have, have somebody pass in your life for lots of reasons. Like you can't maybe be there during the passing and also like, man, you know, we just passed 500,000 deaths in this pandemic. So it's almost like it's not rare. And how do you, how do you, how do you grieve when everybody else is like, yeah, you know, I know somebody too. And it's like, yeah, but my, my grandmother passed. So I was just touched by all that. So I wanted to tie all that together, like the, you know, the Puerto Rican music and celebrating uh, this woman who I don't know. And I didn't know Maria either. So I wanted to get in touch with her and, and just find out a little bit about Amalia, which is her grandmother's name. It's beautiful. Maestra Amalia. Uh, yeah. That was, I mean, that uh, on my first listen to this, to this piece, it was, that's really what struck me right away is it, it leads in with this kind of nostalgic feel. Um, and it, it really, like gave me the feeling of a type of song that my grandparents would have listened to, but then also I would listen to in order to remember them. And oh, it, cool. it just connected me instantly with like, I've, I have zero connection with this piece of music. It was literally the first time I'd ever heard it, but hearing it, it made me nostalgic. It like gave me that feeling. And oh, wow. um, yeah, just a, a, a an overwhelming feeling of like traveling back in time almost of remembering something that I've never experienced personally. <laughs> um, oh. So yeah, really, really cool stuff. Um, what uncertainties did you face in the creation of this piece and what certainties did you maybe face? Yeah. So um, I was certain that it was going to have some Puerto Rican style influence. And uh, it's interesting. Um, I was just, not, not that long ago, I learned about sort of a tradition in Puerto Rico uh, around Christmas. There, there are these tunes called aguinaldos. And I think the tradition is these are tunes that you sing sort of like Christmas carols. You go from house to house. And uh, so I listened to a lot of those over, over the Christmas holiday. So that was a big influence. So I knew like I knew I had a, I had a starting starting place palette wise. I also knew I wanted to tie it in somehow with with uh, the the meat of her of her interview about you know she works for a medical device company and they all they already had this product 
they were ready, you know, in a sense for the, the pandemic. They were like uniquely situated in some ways. So I wanted to use something as a sort of foundation that I had already written. So something that already f- sort of fit what what I needed to do. And so I picked, uh, sort of just bubbled up the uh, Ophelia's uh, funeral procession from Hamlet that I wrote a little over 10 years ago or something like that. So that's the sort of harmonic basis for the piece. And then the rhythmic basis obviously comes from other, other, other places. So those were the things that I knew. The things that I didn't quite know is if I was going to be able to do what I wanted with GarageBand. Because <laughs> GarageBand has, is, is great, uh, but it has lots of limitations. Um, so I wanted it to sound real. I didn't want it to sound like a, a bunch of synthesized instruments. So that's a bit of a challenge. And I guess one of the other uncertainties is like, I had the beginning of the melody that the, that the vibes plays when it comes in. And then I didn't know, you know, so I had, I, you know, set myself up with, with how it starts, you know, that, that sort of arpeggio scale figure. And then, and then I'm like, all right, now what? So that's, that's kind of one of the fun things about composing, writing music, having an idea at the beginning, at the outset, having some, some sort of framework ideas, but giving myself some room to play and explore rather than having the whole thing and, and having to feel like the whole thing needs to be complete before I start. How often do you uh, experience those kinds of like specifically or not? I mean, you spoke about GarageBand in this instance, but like those kind of like equipment limitations or, uh, you know, like, am I going to be able to translate what I'm hearing in my head, what I've created in my brain into an instrument or into live the real world? Yeah. So the band that I that I run sort of evolving right now but it for years it's been uh it's it's a band called sojoy with five horn players and a bass player and i played drums in that group one of the biggest challenges i have is you know i work in finale when i'm writing the music for them to ultimately play and the sounds in finale are even worse than <laughs> than garage band <laughs> so it's like trying to imagine uh i have some sense of what what it's going to sound like, but it's, it's not even close. So yeah, that's one of the, (laughs) one of the things that's, you know, I try to spend as little time as possible, uh, composing and and working on finale and more time playing. Uh, did you learn anything while you were making this? Well, I mean, it's the first thing that I've created since the beginning of the pandemic, almost a year ago. Wow. I don't think I've created anything new since since then i've, I've done wow. a few arrangements here and there but yeah i it's not that i've i, I kind of just you know it's <laughs> there haven't been many opportunities to perform so i haven't been called to create anything new and then of course i i learned you know i spoke with with maria and, and learned about how she's doing and and a little bit about her her grandmother so that was great. So yeah, let's. Uh, I want to kind of dive in more on that creative lull that you're feeling in a way. It was, or I mean, maybe you weren't. You you said it was. Uh, you didn't haven't created anything. Nobody's asked you to create anything. But also, ha- before that, or were you the kind of person that would just create for the sake of creation? And are you now feeling like I want to take a break from that, or I need to take a break from that? 
Hmm. Yeah, I guess before, or my whole professional life, I guess you could say, I've always set my, I don't know, production schedule up uh, with projects, like big projects, not and, and so that's always been inspiring to me is just like having having these giant rock walls to scale. So yeah, obviously a lot of the opportunities for that dried up. And I folk I, I just kind of shifted focus inward, like, you know, I have my my wife and my my two year old and that's so yeah, the kind of the focus and that's yeah, that's just where my my energy went. I mean, you're definitely not alone in that. I mean, every like so many artists have that, as, and I think this is something that a theme that we go back to all the time is back. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a huge kind of feeling from the artistic community of like a need to react in a way. And but you know, some people certainly felt the need to take some time and focus on what's more important to them. So you are absolutely not alone in that feeling. I, we we're all feeling that right now in the artistic community, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about the specific process for this piece, especially after having not worked on anything specifically creative in a long time. Um, what was your, yeah, just kind of walk us through your creative habit or, you know, how, and how do you put it together? What kind of work you did to put this piece together? Yeah. So initially I just gave myself a day. I was like, this is, this is the time I have. Luckily I had, uh, I was on vacation from teaching. So I had a, I had a full day. So I just banged out like the first first draft, and then once yeah, once it's in, it was in a mostly complete state. Then I can kind of pick at it and fine tune. And then just before the the final draft, I I sort of inserted one more little section in the middle. But it had even from like the first day, it had that the, the full the framework where, like you said, it sort of starts with a a nostalgic section and then in my mind it, it sort of took this this form in my mind after it had been completed it's kind of like oh man i hadn't even thought of that but it's like it's kind of like it starts like a black and white photo and then it starts to get a little color when the so the first section is just strings um so it's kind of a thin sound and then get some flutes so it gets a little rounder and maybe that's colorized a little bit and then the percussion comes in then it starts to move Right. And then we get a little movement and then it gets even more energy. And then it kind of comes back through those same stages, right? A little bit more movement, but it's winding down. And then we get the, the color photo and then the black and white again. But it's we're leaving it slightly different than than we started. We have a different but yeah, slightly different ending. So I was, you know, kind of thinking about yeah, just like the trajectory of Maria's life and Amalia's life, Amalia born in Puerto Rico, comes to New York in the early 50s for college, um, goes back to Puerto Rico, and then comes back to get her master's in education. And she's she's been teaching at the, uh, the military school in Bayamon, Puerto Rico. So I'm thinking about like, and this is why I inserted the high energy piece towards the middle, uh, thinking about her coming to New York Thinking, yeah, just thinking about, you know, that wild energy. And even from talking to Maria, it's like dancing, music and dance is like a huge part of all their 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 gatherings. It's like celebration. Yeah. Yeah, the piece, it's, it's very cool. It, it has that kind of like 
cyclical feel uh you know the beginning and the end but it you know it keeps going you could listen to this song and repeat and it would kind of keep going in a way and yeah I, it it connected right and that image of the the color photo too i um i had the i had a very similar like feeling of it but when i was listening to this piece it kind of it it gives you the feeling of listening to like an old radio and then I felt like I was like being pulled mm-hmm. into the radio and then I was in the room with the people that were playing the song on the radio. And then I was pushed so slowly cool. back out of the radio. It's uh, yeah, very, very cool experience. <laughs> it like, it's like listening to a memory. I've already said that, but you know, it really felt like it's a, it's, it, this song is a memory. Um, yeah. In the creation of those That's beautiful distinct pieces, those distinct moments, um, uh, were you thinking of it in that way as you created it? You kind of said you discovered it a little more afterwards, but were you thinking like, okay, this is the intro chunk, this is the meat of it, this is the experience, and then this is to get people out the door at the end? I don't know. How 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 deep into the distinct sections did you get? You know, I think I think my you know I just assigned some of those feelings mm. afterward, but I think as I'm doing it. Um, it's you know it's really hard to to get back to that state of what is it like as I'm creating it, but I think I'm <laughs> purely thinking of the sound of it. Yeah. So I wanted just sonically, I wanted some kind of buffer between the the thin sound of the the strings and the warmer sound of the vibes. So I needed something like it. I, it was too too stark of a contrast for me for what I wanted. So those extra flutes and strings to, to carry, to carry that nostalgic theme into the, the lively, the livelier present feeling thing. And I also found like, as I was just experimenting with that, the warmer sound of the the strings and the flutes, I wanted more complex harmony. So like the, the string sections on the beginning and the end are very more strict like almost classical harmony. And then as the flutes come in, it just gets a little bit more, more jazzy a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if that explains anything. <laughs> that explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Johnny. Yeah, buddy. Happy it's been real great it. chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And as always, please tell a friend. You can follow New Hampshire Theatre Project on all the various social medias through the links in the episode description. There you'll also find a link to our website where you can find information on upcoming programming and even donate to support our continuing work. This podcast is brought to you with the support of the Evelyn L. Y. Jones Fund of the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, as well as our audience. If you have a story to share, you can get in touch through the We Don't Know What This Is Yet page on our website at tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. That's tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. There, you'll also find more information on all our featured artists and be able to view all their work. This podcast is a production of NHTP and the We Don't Know What This Is Yet project. Our show is produced and engineered by C.J. Lewis, who also wrote our theme music, and hosted by me, Robin Fowler. And again, there's one thing you can be certain of. We'll see you next week.